0: We should be actually valuing these businesses differently.
1: It was a lavish, lavish party for a few years, produced by Do the founders make actually any money yeah, I mean three to five million dollars. I could get to a billion dollars in revenue and be worried as entry continue to get lower. Any successful brand's gonna have ten copycats in the next year. How do you think about starting on this business? Well, the real answer, hopefully never.
0: Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC podcast brought to you by Propeller Industries, the leading strategic finance and accounting partner for venture stage companies. On this show, we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. And if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on YouTube or whichever platform you're viewing this content. If you want the full experience, subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where I send fundraising updates and you'll receive new episodes, straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only. It is not investment advice. Our guest today is Fan Bai, who is the founder and CEO of Hedgehog. Hedgehog buys 3 million to $50 million revenue brands that have been built over five plus years and are not yet profitable and typically VC backed. Some of the brands include Rockets of Awesome, Felix Grey, The Reset, and Baboon to the Moon. Fan also founded Blank Label, which is a formal men's apparel brand. We discussed his introduction to entrepreneurship and what he thought was compelling about men's fashion and starting a men's fashion brand, what multiples were used for early digitally native brands and how that's evolved and changed, why he started Hedgehog, and the types of opportunities he saw when he was seeing the change in how brands were being perceived by venture capital. And we also talked about margin, EBITDA, is this a period of growth? How he's thinking about this, this current period of time when it comes to his own brands? What are some of the white spaces he's looking at and as well as categories he's finding attractive when he thinks about buying brands? And much, much, much more. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, fam, for coming on. Without further ado, here's fam. Dan thank you so much
1: for joining me here today.
0: How are you?
1: I'm doing great, Mike uh, excited to be here um long time listener, first time caller.
0: Thank you. thanks so much for listening. thanks for listening. I know that that this has kind of been on our both of our agendas to do this for some time now um and really, really excited that we got we we finally got uh time here today. This is great.
1: yeah no um yeah, likewise uh, it's a it's been a very dynamic, busy year for all in consumer so um um, but yeah, excited to be here today. Yeah,
0: this is a really interesting kind of point in the market for um, for a consumer. But uh, before we kind of get into that, um, I want to start. Of, I want to talk a little bit about men's fashion and 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 your kind of first foray into building brands and um, and kind of specifically focusing on men's fashion. Which, of course, a starting a uh, blank label more than um, ten years ago. Um, why talk to me a little bit about wh- how, how that came about and why you also like picked that category to. Uh, initially.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, You know, it's uh, when I started Blink Label, I wanted to be Andy Dunn. Um, And um, I was like, here's a great looking, well-educated, beautiful head of hair um, starting a business in a category that I could be a customer of. Um, What a great role model. And I still think that today, by the way. Um, and um, but yeah, in terms of men's fashion, it was just like it was a it was a pain point that um, I could understand myself. Like um, wore um, so yeah, had had a custom men's clothing business. Um, I I bought custom clothes. We wanted to make it more accessible with the internet um, instead of this what traditionally was a more stodgy, had to go to a men's shop. Kind of felt intimidating. Um, and um, so, yeah, that, that, that was our first business. And what Andy and Bonobos had also shown was that um, you could build a, a business of large enterprise value and specifically get a software-like or technology-like revenue multiple. Uh, and I thought, this sounds great. Uh, I could get to a million dollars in revenue and be worth 3 to $5 million. Um, and um, from tier one VCs, from the smartest people in the world. Um, and and I think you know, we can take this all the way to the end, which is like, I was one of a thousand or 10,000 or maybe a million ships that got set sail. I think Binobos was founded in 2007, 2008. And for the following five, 10, maybe 15 years, this idea that you could um, be a smart person with a relatively easy—which I mean, isn't to downplay—but um, product, but you know, um, not—it's definitely not rocket science, and it's not um, heavy, heavy IP. A, a smart person could launch a product, raise money from the smartest people in the world at revenue multiples. Uh, and experience a nine figure outcome, which Benoma successfully did, you know, over three times revenue to Walmart, losing tens of millions of dollars a year. Um, And uh, what an incredible and inspiring story. That's what, that was the path that I thought I was on, that I could build this uh, men's clothing business, something that I could be a customer of myself, um, that. And I would be able to exit for a revenue multiple. Uh, and we can get to the chase and tell you that ultimately that didn't happen.
0: Well, when when did you kind of feel, and, you know, I think when VCs, I think I want to say, and we talk about this a lot, but, you know, when, when kind of VCs were underwriting, um, as you said, um, in the kind of the early, early 2010s, late 2000s, maybe like mid-2010s mid as well, that they were kind of viewing... Um, these types of businesses like the the D2c brand business meaning like that that was like the original channel as software businesses, even though it wasn't software businesses, these are ultimately inventory based businesses right um, and should be valued like inventory based businesses it's just a new channel but I think we got caught up with like the distribution and like the the the, the thinking that the distribution was a thing when it's like okay, these are still product led businesses, these aren't you know software businesses. When did, in your mind, did it kind of switch for you from like that? Because it seemed like from the beginning, like seeing what Bonobos had done, and seeing that you know maybe other brands as well were kind of were kind of being thought of as like software businesses, and kind of being being also invested from like very tech heavy um, or software focused you know VCs. When did that kind of shift for you, when, and you kind of start feeling that kind of shift? That wait, this is not. This is actually not, maybe we should be actually valuing these businesses differently.
1: Yeah. look, well, I understand why in the early generation, so let's call it between 2010 and 2015, there were was all this capitalization into direct-to-consumer e-commerce businesses. Because if you scrubbed out the names and you said, hey, here's something that feels infinitely scalable, uh, that has... 75 to 80 percent gross margins, um, and can get to 100 million dollars in revenue within three to five years. I could equally be talking about a software business or an e commerce business, and ultimately, like the nuance is what makes those two things really, really different. Um, but all of those kind of facts could still be true. Um, and but it's all the nuance that kind of, um, And the complexity of that, you know, beyond that, that makes it not work. Um, To answer your question, it's like when, so we never reached the scale. Uh, We we never kind of broke out, got the scale. Um, And after several years, we kind of looked at trying to exit. Um, And when we first went out to market to try to exit, I thought, okay, so here we are, like um, several million dollars in revenue. We'll just take, yeah, cool. I'll take my three uh, X uh, off the shelf. Thank you very much. Yeah, you'll pay twenty million dollars. Yeah, I I was just waiting, like um, you know, and then people were like, what are you talking about, like um, and I was like, well, you know, I just want my vinoba's exit, my three X revenue, and uh, like it doesn't like like young blood doesn't work like that. Um, and um, and that's when I was like, oh shoot, uh, so how does it actually work? And um. Again, in our corner of the ecosystem in this small to lower mid market, so let's call it in the like five to thirty million dollar revenue range, in the like zero to four or five million dollar EBITDA range, like the default is an EBITDA multiple. Uh that there really isn't revenue multiples in the in the lower, small and in today even in the mid market. Um and so then we have to go, oh shoot. Like how do we produce enough EBITDA that we can actually get an EBITDA multiple? Because at the time we we're kind of EBITDA neutral. Um, and that's when you go from you know, playing checkers to playing chess. You're playing checkers when you're just focused on net revenue and growing net revenue. You're playing chess when you're saying, oh shoot, it's not just one line item on my P&L that to be paying attention to? It's all 40 line items storage fees, credit card processing fees, uh, delivery costs, returns, um, you know, cost of running all your channels, each GNA line item. And, um, and you're like, okay, now I need to like bump all of these things, a couple of points, um, uh, to be getting a, you know, 10 to 20% EBITDA margin to be getting a three to six X EBITDA multiple. And, um, and, um, so yeah, it was a very sad realization when, um, and um, I went from an, a revenue multiple world to, uh, which is really just a fantasy in my head, um, to an EBITDA multiple world.
0: And like the EBITDA multiple world, you know, playing chess, as you say, versus checkers. I mean, this was also kind of like like traditionally, because it's not like, you know, MA for consumer brands. It's not like this is a new thing, right? In the past like yeah. 20 years, it magically happened. Like this was tr- th- the traditional model. It's just that... Um, because, you know, DTC brands were, were kind of thought of software. It was kind of, we, we only really thought of it as from like a revenue standpoint, like that was kind of like the marker that you kind of aim for. Right. Um, uh, but of course from like a growth, gross margin perspective, you know, pretty different, um, overall, um, unless maybe you're in like, maybe, unless you're like beauty and personal care, which is, which maybe looks actually similar. Um, but, um, but for the most part. Um, pretty different from like a, from like a, a, a ghost margin perspective. And I think that too, um, and so like, it, it, it's not like it was like, you know, a new thing going to like the EBITDA thing about EBITDA. It's just that for like D2C brands, it was like, oh wait, we actually are, we are actually maybe closer, even though it's, you know, a different model in that we're actually selling a lot more majority direct rather than wholesale, but we actually look a lot more like, um, in terms of how our, our uh, in terms of value, it's a bit more like a wholesale business rather than like a, a DDC business.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right, Mike. Um, it was, um, there was a lavish, lavish party for a few years uh, introduced by um, some very nice investors. They only had the finest champagne um, and everyone got very drunk. Um, and, um, but yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly right. I think that and we're maybe at the tail end of coming to that realization that it is very much like it was before. Um, and, but yeah, during this period where there was all this investment that went in and pricing these startups on revenue multiples, um, everyone just shifted to, Oh, that's going to be the way that the world works. Um, and I'm going to be able to get my revenue multiple on the exit. And I think it's important to distinguish like, it's one thing having a valuation of a revenue multiple from an early stage investor. um, And it's a whole different thing having an exit on a, on a revenue multiple um, or having an exit valuation. And and the large driving part of that is like early stage investing comes with a bunch of securities, governance and terms and probably the most important one being preference, liquidation preference. And that, they might be investing at a two to three x revenue multiple uh, in terms of ownership, but they also get the downside protection of they might get one to three times their money out first before anyone else gets paid. Um, And and that allows to inflate the valuation a little bit because they get the downside protection. Um, But that is not, it's almost apples to oranges versus what your actual exit valuation yeah.
0: And I think, and I think, I mean, that's a great point. And I think too, you know, I think sometimes if you're a founder, um, you might get, you know, excited that, okay, hey, um, we uh, we got maybe less dilution or we have, we we raise, we're, we're, when we think about what to negotiate on the term sheet, oh, well, we're going to negotiate and have our, have our valuation be sky high. Right. But really, like, that's really, that's not, you know, it, it, it might not be reality uh, to your point when you actually do exit, it might be, it might be lower than that. It might, uh, it, it, it might be roughly that. And maybe you've actually, you know, achieved a lot more success when it comes to revenue and maybe, maybe even, even EBITDA, but at the same time, you might not get as much money or not nearly as much because of, because of what the actual, uh, uh, preferences um um and and you know if if if, um if also they have preferred stock or like what have you like there's a lot of other parts to actually negotiate from there it's not you you shouldn't only be looking at um obviously what like the valuation is but also um but also like the what the actual liquidation preferences as well so that's that's a great point
1: yeah Uh, i know i was just gonna reiterate that I, i think that um um in today's market, where there's been a lot of compression in pricing, people are paying more attention to the liquidation preference that they had, that they probably glossed over um, more than ever before.
0: So when you when you first started Hedgehog, was um, obviously you already had um, your own brand with um, Blank Label. But um, h- um, how are you able to maybe raise... Um, the first round of funding or, 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 or at what point did you have to, um, or were you kind of self-funding as well through your business when it came to acquiring um, additional, um, additional uh, brands?
1: Yeah, we raised money pretty early on in Hedgehog's life. Um, I, as you said, we already had some, a couple of brands in the portfolio. So there was, there was something, there was something there already. And then uh, ultimately Alan investors believed in the strategy that, you know, we could go and acquire more brands, produce EBITDA from turning those brands around, um, and um and grow, grow this platform. Um we've raised money a couple of times, um, a couple of times on equity, a couple of times on credit. Um and um but yeah, we're kind of being we're capitalized pretty early on in the hedgehog journey.
0: And and in terms of like targeting you know brands. Um, I know that you know your your website, and, and, and I think we talked to, t- talked a bit about more. Um, uh, talked this uh, talked previously about this, and also I've heard you talk about other this other podcast. But this kind of messy middle where, um, maybe it's uh the company's venture backed. It's um, understood that it's not really going to receive like venture type returns. Um, uh, but um, can you talk to me a little bit about the actual what? how you identify what quality brands are in terms of what the actual range is.
1: I'll comment on that question in two different ways. So I think that there's two components to it. One, which is, yeah, I think the messy middle is really, really tough. If you've raised the money, which almost certainly means you have liquidation preference. Um, it's and coupled with almost every brand that we see has some credit profile, just the proliferation of credit in the last couple of years. So you've got the way the capital stack sits. You've got the lender who's the most senior. You've got the preferred, and then you've got the founders or common below that. And the way that prices compress so much, um, there's, it's questionable as to who gets value. Like Obviously, again, the lender being first. Um, and so that becomes a really tough space. We have a lot of founders that are working on their businesses for often several years. That are now all of a sudden saying like, I might be out of the money here. I could get an exit, but the exit, just the way the prices are working, are happening at a point that like I don't want to see anything from this, uh, and we're seeing that a lot, uh, and that's a really tough, tough spot to be in. Um, in terms of like what we look for in a quality business or what we think is a quality business, I think um, there are a few major components. One which is gross margin profile at the top of the PL. Like it's, um, actually I'll, I'll start even beyond uh, above that, which is like revenue quality. Like, is there anything sticky about the revenue? Uh, I mean, that's the great thing about software businesses and why software businesses are, are at a revenue multiple and at a 10X revenue multiple is because it's, revenue quality is really, really high. Like that is, it's like uh, a great software business their revenue is like an investment grade bond. Like people aren't churning from that. Uh, you are going to get paid um, for a consumer discretionary e-commerce business. Really volatile. So like, is there any revenue quality that's through subscription repeat? Um, be, beyond that, we're looking at like product margin and then like less cost of delivery. So what we think about as true gross margin. Like do we really need true gross margin again net of cost of delivery to be north of 50 points. That probably means that you've got product margins landed north of 70 points. And most businesses we see, and we've seen hundreds of p do not have that. They started, because a part of the original D2C promise was you would get, you'd go direct to consumer and you'd cut out the middleman and you'd kind of target 50% product margins. The problem is the 50% landed product margins actually gets you around 30%, maybe even 25% gross margins when you include credit card processing fees, returns, receiving costs, freight costs, storage. Um, and um, and a 25% gross margin business is almost impossible to make work in e-commerce. So gross margins is really important. Um, and then it's kind of operational complexity we see a lot of subscale businesses, uh, that are running lots of channels. And I know that Omnichannel is the buzzword of 2022, 23, probably the buzzword of 24 in e-commerce. We actually think that, um, that's really risky. And we actually, um, like the more channels for us in often case, um, uh, the worse the, the acquisition opportunity is because, um, That just requires a lot of brain power, a lot of heads and a lot of marketing support to run. We see five million dollar revenue businesses that are on their dot com, running Amazon, running marketplace, um, running retail, running international. And it's um, that gets very expensive. All else being equal would much rather that business having doing the same velocity just in .com and then leaving the others as upside once you've got more scale. Um, So there's some of the attributes that we look for.
0: This episode is brought to you by Propeller Industries. If you run a high growth business and you're focused on profitability, extending your runway, and improving your operational efficiency, you probably need a finance and accounting whiz that will grow with you. Well, instead of hiring someone full-time, what would be cost-effective is working with Propeller Industries. Propeller Industries is a leading strategic finance and accounting partner for venture stage companies, and has partnered with over 1,000 startups and high-growth businesses across consumer products, consumer tech, and enterprise. Some of the brands that they've worked with are Liquid Death, Olipop, Hims, Farmer's Dog, Away, MoviePass, and Giphy. Propeller also provides specialized support for fundraising and M&A with transaction advisory services. Propeller's TA team of former investment bankers and investors can step in on more of a project basis when pursuing full-scale financing and M&A. There's a link to Propeller Industries in the show notes if you want to learn more information. In your in your mind, um, let's say D2C is a starting point for a business. When do you think it make sense roughly that actually a D2C channel uh, or a ddc brand should actually expand to additional sales channel
1: yeah, yeah i mean look the real answer is hopefully never because ddc is actually a great channel um if you can be butcher books and do 600 million C only amazing um orthotic green sure yeah if you can do um nine figures only direct it just makes your business much easier to run i think you're going omnichannel sometimes because you, you really have to sometimes because it's like what your product like if you're in a low aov product if you're in a high shipping cost product direct's probably not a good channel for you uh if you're in like a one-time only purchase with no replan like probably like Retail might make more sense than dot com. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think like we still love e-commerce for all of like all of the reasons that the original tech investors loved e-commerce, which is it in theory and in its best cases, it is incredibly scalable. Um, and, um, but most products don't tip that most products you can need to open a second channel build brand awareness and, and I, I think that obviously it makes sense in a lot of categories where if you can get a partner like target where you're getting good sell through and you're not necessarily making great margin on it but it's developing brand awareness uh and you're getting replant at the dot com from that um then yeah again i think um, it, it can make a lot of sense i think it sets also a lot of brands up um uh, to stumble because Uh, and we've experienced it ourselves we have a lot of brands that have opened doors and you just don't get the sell through um and uh and that can get tricky
0: well let's let's like um let's uh, touch on what you said about how the dc channel is is scalable and obviously this depends what you know scale means to different people in terms of from like a a revenue standpoint um but um i think a lot of brands are and a lot of kind of um, investors are kind of pushing for brands to go more omnichannel because of course, you know, you have this, this middleman and, you know, meta Google, and it's becoming a lot more expensive, um, to actually achieve, um, scale. So how, and I know that you're very bullish on the, on the, on the, uh, DTC channel that you can kind of reach scale and of course you know we've seen it with Butcherbox we've seen it with Let Greens there's some great examples of companies that reach scale but how do you also think in terms of your brands and also when you're analyzing brands how do you think about like online CAC
1: overall yeah um, I think there are only so it, it really needs to have good channel fit um, and so it, it's not so much that we think that DTC is better than retail. Uh, That's not what I'm saying at all. It's more, um, DTC is more expertise. And we look for products that have, products and brands that have better channel fit. So for us, like that's largely like the best part of DTC is replan. If you can acquire a customer and get them regularly coming back, uh, whether that's through subscription or it's a kind of seasonal replan, that that can be a beautiful business. And 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 arguably like that, that's really the only kind of D 2 C business that can really work if you include the meta tax. If you if it's really expensive, if you're in a category where it's expensive to acquire a customer, because it's it's hard to explain that you're a low AOV product with high shipping costs, with no replen, that's a terrible D2C business. Um and uh but we've seen a lot of those. Um, and, um, so it's, it's more like, it, it's, it's more about like, um, kind of product channel fit. Um, and again, our expertise happens to be more in, um, more com.
0: So, so let's dive into that in terms of what the ideal product channel fit is for, for DC. Obviously you've, you've, you've named off, um, a few different attributes that actually make. A very good, you know, compelling um Adido, brand. You know, high AOV. Um, you have to have um, higher than than fifty percent um, gross margins. Um, and but where does that fall into specific categories for you that you then find attractive when it comes to um, that you're able to actually scale that it, that um, that are companies are able to reach scale in your mind
1: on D2C. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, return and replen or, you know, repeat orders, replenishment orders, um, is really where the magic of D 2 C, um, is. And, um, and so what are the categories we see that this is no secret, but like supplements, um, is obviously a great one. Um, we have to think that, um, apparel, um, just because uh, you know, most apparel brands, you're buying multiple items, some kind of seasonality push, colorways, et cetera. Uh, uh, I understand that a lot of people don't like apparel because of the high return rate, but we think the LTV tail um, makes up for it, more than makes up for it. Um, and, but yeah, repeat rate is a, is a really big driver um, of what we think can make a D2C business work.
0: How do you also analyze analyze the actual product itself and when it comes to um when it comes to like the ip or differentiation does that does that as much matter to you or 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 how do you how do you kind of think about that aspect when it comes to building a brand and as well as you know is it right a right fit as well too for the ddc channel
1: yeah um look i think that um the age of launching a product that's just a skin on something from Alibaba is probably over. Um, And today the product innovation, real product IP uh, is really critical for anyone starting a brand because we're brand buyers. And again, our playbook and philosophy at Hedgehog is much more about, hey, let's make, let's turn a growth business that was losing the money into a profitable business, um, small but mighty. Um, it's like where we've largely already de-risked when we're buying a 10 to $15 million revenue business, we've largely de-risked that there is market demand for it. Um, and um, and so with that scale, assuming that you know, there is inherent in that you know, demand that there is some IP, um, yeah, of course we do new product development on top of that. But um, yeah, if we were starting a brand today, that product differentiation hurdle would be very, very high. Because um, otherwise, I think it's any successful brand is going to have ten copycats in the next year, um, and um, barriers to entry continue to get lower um, t- to start an e-commerce business. So, um, no, absolutely.
0: I know that you kind of when we when we talked about the predicament that some of these founders are in, in that, Hey, if my company isn't nearly as valuable as I thought it was, and also like the exit potential out there, um, I might not not see a dime because of course you have, you know um, um, uh, the debt, um, you know, inventory financing or, you know, uh, marketing spend, or, you know, there's a lot of obviously providers out there uh, uh, for both. And of course you have maybe your, um, your VCs or angel investors that maybe have, you know, um uh uh preferred uh l- liquidity preferences um when you acquire a company um does since I'd imagine a lot of the companies that you acquire um are venture backed um, I know like a few of them are um have do the founders make actually any money from from f- from the acquisitions um uh, from when when you acquire them
1: Yeah. Um, great question. Look, it's, um, we always try to get the founder something. Um, and it's, um, you know, we've seen some really bad outcomes where founders have been running their brands for a decade and they have personally guaranteed debt in the business. And, um, um, and not only are you ending with nothing, but you're ending a 10 year journey with a big liability. Um, and um those are kind of the really sad situations um yeah we always try to get found or something um and it's um but yeah it's, it's a really really compressed environment out there um um hard to get deals done um a lot of brands that are down from last year from the year before um really tough
0: I know we talked about a little bit, but like, what in your sense is the kind of mar- market pulse today? I'd imagine that in terms of seeing opportunities, there's more opportunities than ever for like a hedgehog in terms of the acquisition side. But, um, but if you can kind of how if, if you kind of like share a little bit about how you think about like the market right now in the world of in, in the world of consumer, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, I think that. Uh, Look, well, consumer deals are obviously still happening from both an equity standpoint as well as an exit standpoint. Um, it's, I'd say that what we've noticed and kind of had gleaned from our our investor friends and peers is um, you just need to be a ten out of ten brand to be kind of raising money, uh, and that's maybe a little bit different to. Years in the past where you could have gotten away with being an eight or a nine, you know eight or nine out of ten, maybe even a seven out of ten, um, but there's just much more scrutiny across all your metrics, um, and um, and so it's just much harder. It's still happening, but much much harder. And so um, if you're not a ten out of ten brand, you're in this. You can. It's easy to get into this doom loop of okay, we're not growing, so we should conserve cash. Um, We should um, invest less in marketing, which means that we're gonna grow even less. So that can be very tricky. Um, But it just means that the bar is much higher. Now, also exits are obviously still happening Um, and online commerce is still growing. Um, And there are still the standout standout outcomes where positive uh, top line growth, positive EBITDA growth, Um, and sometimes you also just catch lightning in a bottle, um, where there's just great product market fit, um, and still strategic transactions happening. Um, but again, I think that we're not going to get the, it'll be a long time before we see the Dollar Shave Club Bonobos exits of three to five times revenue multiples of Ebitda losing businesses. I think transactions today are much more. Yeah, there's an implied revenue multiple, but there's also significant EBITDA growth. You know, double like uh, eight figures of EBITDA growing double digits year over year, Um, and 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 those are just incredible businesses that should have a should have their kind of requisite premium.
0: Do you do you think that there's a lot of kind of chatter? um, And I like your kind of. Um, your example of, okay, we don't maybe don't have um, as, as much capital on, um, on hand as we did because we can't maybe we're not a, a 10 out of 10 brand. So we need, be, need to maybe cut marketing spend. Um, and, if, and, and I guess the goal ultimately then in that kind of realm, if you're if you're kind of not growing as, at, at a pace or kind of cutting spend, it's it's more like a destined to like become profitable. And there's of course, a lot of chatter around profitability and trying to become profitable and what have you. But is that, do you think that advice really is for the brands that aren't 10 out of 10? The the brands that actually aren't able to, that aren't like, um, aren't able to raise capital? Is that only advice for for those brands or is that advice as well for like the 10 out of 10 brands?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think if you start with the end in mind and realize that you're most likely going to be exiting for Enable on multiple, like just design your business around that, and it's you know, it's still possible that someone will pay an irrational price if you're growing quickly. Um, but I think really hard to plan around for that plan around that, which is what I think most people do. Most people assume that someone's going to pay an irrational price, um, and but if you can if you can be a profitable business uh, that's growing, you know, time is on your side. Um, And you can afford to get lucky. You can afford for someone to come along and pay an irrational price. You can afford to have a tailwind where you have an amazing 18 to 24 months that will give you a really big exit premium because of your growth velocity. Um, Hoping that um, you you can continue to burn, continue to be capitalized, and ultimately find someone to pay you an irrational price even though you're even on neutral I, I just don't think that that will happen in the you know next year or two when you acquire
0: a brand how do you think about the pace of growth for the brand um what is the kind of right pace or benchmarks that that you're kind of looking to achieve and making sure that hey, we're not like growing too fast and maybe spending too much. At the same time, we're not kind of growing too slowly either.
1: We are not growing our brands. Uh, not this year, not last year, probably not next year. Uh, and that's as much a reflection on our strategy as it is on market conditions. Um, growth is just really hard, really expensive. Um, we're seeing a lot of softness and consumer discretionary. Um, and it's really... Ex- expensive and hard to make top of the funnel investments, which you ultimately need to do to be growing the business. Um, and that's also kind of uh, as much a market condition, it's a, it's a you know, strategy decision for us. We care much more about driving EBITDA um, and you know, uh, running a lean business than you know, taking that money and, you know, um, and redeploying it you on know, top line. Um, so yeah, currently and what has been for the last kind of 12 to 18 months, um, we're kind of targeting, we're budgeting to be neutral, um, and, and it probably will be that way for the foreseeable future.
0: What's that? What's the goal? Um, I know when we started this conversation, we talked about, you know, how brands were so focused on revenue and now of course we're thinking about, okay, um, gross margin profile and obviously that leads to EBITDA from revenue. What percent? What what's the um, ideal metric when it comes to or or percentage when it comes to EBITDA that it's actually churning out um, EBITDA? Is it like ten percent EBITDA or like what what it is based off of a revenue in an ideal world?
1: Yeah, for us, like we we want our brands to be like base case is ten percent EBITDA profitable. Twenty um, percent is twenty percent is the stretch case. Most of our brands fit somewhere in between that. Okay, got it. Got it. Got it.
0: And, and talk to me a little bit too, around what, after you acquire a brand, how do you think about like the management team when it comes to the, when it comes to the brand and actually integrating them with the other portfolio? I understand that. Okay. We're going to kind of, there's maybe synergies across, you know, four or five of them where maybe have maybe one or two email marketers instead of having, you know, one for the, for each brand. But how do you think about bringing that brand kind of into the fold?
1: to be clear hedgehogs buy side thesis is very much brands that are in special situations, um, or, you know, uh, in turnaround situations, which largely translates to like, it hasn't totally gone well. Um, and most of the time when a founder has worked on something in our cases on average of seven years, and it isn't really what they want it to happen. Um, they're looking to go and do something else. You know, it, it hasn't really filled their cup. Um, and so, um, and, and, and for that reason, like, you know, obviously founders transitioned, but um, the founders sticking on um, and sticking on with the brand multiple years is not a part of the hedgehog strategy. Um, now we know other platforms that it is, but it, 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 it isn't in our case, mostly because of our buy side thesis. Um, we integrate portions of the team, but again, we also lean out the teams, um, and because we're you know, um, we're trying to drive that EBITDA. Um, but no, we would have we would almost always have some team members come over.
0: How active is Hedgehog right now in terms of um, making um, uh, actually buying companies? I, it seems like this is a you're in a pretty good position at this point. Um, in time, continually the the market condition in any consumer. Uh, But um, what's like the ideal number of brands that you want to acquire and, and and how are you thinking about as well in, in 2024?
1: Yeah. um, We would have bought three brands this year. Um, I think next year we probably imagine something similar. Um, We don't have a specific mandate of um, we need to buy X brands each year. Um, I think we see more brands than ever at the moment. Um, um, but we're, 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 we're trying to be really cautious just the way that the overall market is, um, we don't want to get into a situation where 2024, an election year, this softness in the market, and then we're holding a bunch of brands that, um, are really challenged. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, we're seeing more brands than ever, but we're still being very, very cautious.
0: What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally?
1: Um, Yeah, I would say like, so I've I, I read probably three books that um, were situational in different points of my life. Um, when I was in college, I wanted to be an investment banker. Um, I read Richard Branson's um Losing My Virginity, um, which was just like, you know, his autobiography about being a maverick, being a brand builder, having an affinity for consumer products and, um, and consumer experiences uh, that really changed my life um, and kind of set me down a path of being a consumer brand entrepreneur. Um, then, in my probably late 20s, I read the Warren Buffett biography Snowball um which again kind of introduced me to a portfolio strategy a probably slightly longer term view versus the like um you know venture short duration view um which was really transformative and then more recently and this one is much more about life um a book by arthur brooks um, called build a life you want um which is much more just about you know um uh he's a Harvard professor, uh done a lot of um psychology and biology research work around happiness, um, which is kind of just yeah, inform you know, I know how I wanna uh, the, the life I want to lead.
0: That's awesome. Uh thanks for uh, uh thanks for uh sharing these three. We've had on a, we've had on a couple past guests to talk about lose my virginity, but I don't think the other two we've actually um uh had others mentioned so 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 that's great thank you van um yeah this is a lot of fun thank you so much for your time
1: yeah absolutely mike um really enjoyed you know really enjoy the podcast um you know uh, i think it's really great kind of what you're doing for the community and i um, excited to you know, share our story
0: that's so kind i love your twitter posts i love i love your breakdown of kind of uh of different fundraisers and kind of acquisitions so um really appreciate also all all that you share on the media
1: side yeah thanks so much mike
0: and there you have it fan thanks so much again for coming on the podcast really enjoyed talking with you if you enjoyed this episode and you and you want to stay in the loop i highly recommend subscribing to my newsletter at the consumervc.com where you'll receive All the new updates when it comes to consumer fundraising from the past week. You'll also receive new episodes straight to your inbox. If you're subscribing on YouTube or wherever you're listening to this podcast, I'll also hit the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.